This morning, I want to talk to you about the three crosses at Calvary, and hopefully it'll be a help to you today. You know, probably the greatest Christian that ever lived, I would say Paul the Apostle, he said this in the book of Galatians. He said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is without a doubt the central focus of Christianity. I mean, it's everything. The resurrection as well, but it's right there in the center of all of Christianity. It was at the cross that God declared His love for the world. And you know, it was also love that kept the Lord Jesus on the cross, not the nails that were pierced through His hands, but love kept Him there. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Because it changed you. It changed me. It affected my life. When I, when I understood the cross and all that God did for me through not only the cross, but also the burial and the uh, resurrection, it's the power of God. A little girl came home from church one Sunday, and her mom asked her what she learned today. She said, well, I used to think the symbol for love was shaped like this right here. Y'all can tell what that is, right? A little heart. I used to think the symbol for love was shaped like a heart, but now I realize it's shaped like that right there. It's a cross. That's what you see at Calvary. That's what you see at the cross. You see the love of God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. Apart from the cross, there is no other bridge one can cross to enter into heaven. We all must come by way of the cross. That gruesome scene at Calvary, that vile moment in history when the perfect man was slain for imperfect sinners, when God humbled himself in order to exalt us to heavenly heights, the cross. What a scene. Today I want to introduce you to three crosses at Calvary that we read about in Luke chapter 23, and it's really paralleled in the other Gospels as well. But there's really three crosses there at Calvary, and each one's significant. One is the cross our Savior hangs on. The Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, hangs on that cross. It's in the middle, actually, and you'll see that here in a second. And you can imagine the middle cross being the Lord's cross. Then there's a cross off to His left, that's another cross. Many of us in the room could possibly be hanging on that cross today. And then there's a cross off to the right. And some of us might even be hanging on that cross today. But you are on, right now, one of those two crosses surrounded around the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question about it. It's not as though you're going to find you another way or find you another cross. You're hanging on one of those two crosses. And they're all in very close proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ. On one cross, you have the arguing criminal. You're going to learn about him before too long. On the other cross, you have one who is an admitting criminal. He admits what he's done. And then on the middle cross, you have an atoning Savior. On one cross, you have a berating fool. He'll be the one on my left right now. On the other cross, you have a believing man. And on the middle cross, you have a broken Savior. On the left cross, you have one who's cursing the Lord. On the one on the right, you have one who's calling on the Lord. And the one in the middle, you have the one who's cleansing the sinner. On this cross, you have one who's denying the Lord. On this one, you have one who's deciding to trust in the Lord. And the one in the middle, you have one who's delivering all who have need of a Savior. On this cross, you have one dying in sin. On this cross, you have one dying to sin. And on this cross, you have one dying for sin. 
On this cross over here, you have one who's full of greed. The other cross, you have one full of guilt. The middle cross, you have one full of grace. On this cross, you have one who's ignorant as he hangs on the cross, not realizing who's beside him. On this cross, you have one who's been illuminated. He recognizes the one in the middle. And the one in the middle is the great I am who can take away the sins of the world. On this cross, you have the one who's being judged. On this cross, you have one who's being justified. And in the middle, you have the judge who declares one or the other. On this cross, you have the one who's miserable. This one, you have the one who's meek. And in the one in the middle, you have the one who's marvelous. On this cross, you have the one who's going to be lost forever. On this cross, you have the one who's loved forever. And in the middle, you have the Lord who will be Lord forever. On this cross, you have the sinner. On this cross, you have the saved. And on the cross in the middle, you have the Savior. I hope it's all starting to make sense to you right now. Amen. On this cross, you have the one who's rejecting the Lord. On this cross, you'll have the one who's receiving the Lord. And on this cross, you have the one who's redeeming mankind unto himself. And on this cross, you have the one who's taunting the Lord. On this cross, you have the one who's trusting the Lord. And this cross in the middle, you have the one who tasted death for us all. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we have. So this morning, I want to talk to you about these three crosses. And you're going to find much about them in Luke chapter 23. And so I pray today's message will be a help and a blessing to you. If you will, stand to your feet as we give honor to God's Word today. I'm going to read verses 33 through 47. 33 through 47. Verse 33. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, then save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, well then save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Father, we want to ask you to help today with this message. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the preacher today. Lord, I humbly ask that I would decrease and that you would increase, that the people would see you better, more clearly, see the Savior, Lord, as he needs to be seen on the cross, in the tomb, and even resurrected later. 
Father, I ask you to have your way in the service. It could be that one is here today who has not truly trusted in Christ as their Savior. Today, Lord, I pray you'd move on their heart. Father, I pray you'd draw them to your Son, that they would realize that they are a sinner coming short of your wonderful glory and that they need Christ to save them. Lord, it could be that some are here, as the testimonies were mentioned earlier, that once had a zeal for you, once had a passion for you, once talked about the things at Calvary, once talked about the resurrected Savior, but yet their lips have been stopped for some reason. Their heart's not bubbling over with that joy anymore. They don't have that same fire, that same zeal, that, that same drive any longer. Lord, I pray you'd help them to see your love one more time. Lord, I know in Scripture, Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth us. Lord, I think about Paul, this great man. Father, as he lived his life and all the trials and tribulations he experienced, and yet because of the love of Christ, it compelled him to go on in his Christianity. I pray today, Lord, maybe you'd help us to give a new, just set before us just a new take on Calvary, a new picture of what took place there. Lord, that, that we'd understand the great love that was shown to us on that day. Father, thank you. May you help today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go and be seated. Luke chapter 23 again. In verse 39, we see the cross of the sinner. That's where we're going to start. This was the cross over here on my left. And I put it there because often in the Bible you find the things on the right hand are given a place of honor. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. If the cross is in the middle, then I would say the one on the right is probably the one who's been saved, a place of honor. The one on the left, well, that's the cross of the sinner today. Now, the first cross that each of us finds ourselves hanging on is that cross. Every single person in this room, at some point in your life, you were hanging on that cross. The cross on the left side of the Lord Jesus. That's the cross of the sinner. We hang on that cross because we are criminals before God. You say, wait a second, I've never broken a law. You broke God's law. God has a moral law, a moral standard that he set early on in, in, in the creation of mankind. And yet all of us have come short of that law that he put before us. That's why the Bible says all have sinned and come short of his glory. We have trespassed God's moral law. Look at verse 39 with me. It says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him. The word malefactors is, is synonymous or similar to the word criminal. It means criminal. That's all it means. This man was a guilty criminal. He had been accused of breaking the laws of the land, and that's why he was being crucified that day. But on the other side of it, he was also accused of breaking God's moral law. That's why he was dying that day as well. See, you and I know that we're guilty of sin for this one reason, that we all will die one day. You say, wait a second, I thought Jesus was impeccable, sinless, and yet he died. Oh, see, Jesus gave his life up as a ransom for many, but nobody took the life of Jesus. But for me and you, one day as you get to a certain point in your life, whether it's through tragedy or sickness or whatever it might be, it might just be old age, but mark it down, one day you will see death. And because you're seeing death, you know that that tells you that you are a sinner in the eyes of God because the wages of sin is death. So we're all hanging on that cross, at least at the beginning of our lives, you were on the cross of the sinner because we're all criminals. Now, for the malefactor here, what we find in him is we find this man was denying his own guilt. Look at, look at the verse with me, if you will. 
One of the male factors which hang railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. He thought himself worthy to be delivered off of that cross that day. He said, God, I'm good enough. Christ, if you are the Christ, if you truly are who you say you are, then why don't you just save us all? He didn't see himself as a guilty sinner. He, saw, he, he just hated the fact that he had gotten caught. You know, a lot of people are like that. I have children, and I've, I've spent time with my girls trying to teach them right and wrong. And there's been different phases, you know, as they grow up, things change. But there's been some times where I would, I would catch them in the middle of doing something wrong. And I'd say, I can't believe you did that. And you know what? They didn't really feel bad about what they were doing. They didn't like the punishment. They did not like the fact that they had gotten caught. But there was no guilt nor remorse for what they had done. That's the difference in the person who hangs on the sinner's cross and the person who ever makes it to the other cross with the saved. The one who hangs on the sinner's cross, they still see themselves as good. They say, well, I just hate I've done anything wrong. I mean, I hadn't really done anything wrong. And if they do get caught, they just hate the fact that they got caught, but they're not actually remorseful for what they have done towards a holy and righteous God, as we learned about this morning in the, in the singing the choir did, and you all as well. So this man that hung on the first cross, he did not see himself as a criminal, and so he had no guilt for, what he, for the reason why he was there. You never see it in his, in his word, in the conversation here. He just simply hated the fact that he was hanging on a cross. And we know it in his words. He blasphemes the Lord Jesus. Verse 39, it says, The male factor which hanged railed on him. The word railed means to blaspheme. Could you imagine being on the cross next to the Lord Jesus? who is actually dying for your sin, and this man was hanging there for, he had only shown up for just a brief moment in history, and God, who is eternal, was hanging on the cross next to him, and he looks at him, and he blasphemes the Lord while he's there. You'll find the person who's on this cross is a blasphemer of the Lord. They deny his word. They deny his work. They deny his ways. They deny his power. They deny him over and over. They're a blasphemer of the Lord. They speak evil of him. And then also you find on this cross right here is the unbeliever, the naysayer, the doubter. And this morning that could be you. Maybe you've been to a million Easter services throughout your whole life and you're just hearing the same message again. Well, then you're probably on this cross still as you hang with the sinner who's an unbeliever. Here's how I know he was an unbeliever. Look what he says. He says, if thou be the Christ. If. He doesn't say... You are. He doesn't declare Lord. He says, if thou art the Christ, if you're actually who you think you, who you say you are, well, then why don't you save yourself, and then while you're at it, get me off the cross too. He didn't realize why the Christ had to come. He did not realize that mankind had a great sin problem that needed to be dealt with, and mankind will never deal with their sin problem. It'll take God Almighty to do it. With man, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So the cross of the sinner includes the criminal, the blasphemer, and the unbeliever. And today, if, if, uh, if any of these line up with you, then you're probably hanging on the cross of the sinner. Then on the other side, the cross of the saved. Did you know anyone's welcome to be on this cross? Anyone at all. You don't have to have some, church, some certain type of church affiliation to be on that cross. You don't have to uh, have a certain Bible in hand necessarily to be on that cross. You don't have to have some certain upbringing or some, some type of clothing or a certain amount of money that you've put in the plate to be on that cross. Anybody at all can be on that cross. He says, whosoever can come. 
All are welcome to be on this cross. But here's what it requires. It requires repentance and it requires belief. It's absolute faith in what God has said in His Word. We see it in the man right here. You look at verse 40 with me. It says, but the other answering, that's the man on the other cross, the one to the right, but the other answering rebuked him. The one on the cross of the saved rebuked the one on the cross of the sinner. And he said, dost thou fear, or dost not thou fear God? You know, on this cross over here, you know what's here? A fear for God is on this cross. We don't talk enough about a fear for God, but I want you to know you should fear God. All of us should fear God. You know why? Because God is omnipotent, meaning He's almighty. Therefore, if God wants to let you go into heaven, it'll be His will. If God wants to send you to hell, it'll be His will. No prayer in all the world has ever forced someone into heaven. It's only by the grace of God that anybody ever gets there. And on this cross, we should have a certain amount of fear for God, and that fear will often turn into reverence as you know God better and better in your Christian life. It's a recognition of who God is, that He's not the man upstairs. He's not the buddy Christ. He's not all these silly euphemisms that people come up with and these terms and that labels and names. He is God Almighty who spoke all things into existence, who has existed for all of eternity, past, present, and future, and will always be there just the same. He's the God who's never changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the one who, as the seraphims in heaven, who, who seem to be in, in, in a type of um, um, heavenly glory, stand before the throne of God and declare, holy, holy, holy is the one who sits on that throne. There's a certain fear for God over there. And this man who was on that cross, he says, Dost not thou fear God? He says, Seeing thou art in the same condemnation. In the book of Proverbs, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you've never come face to face with God, then it's very likely you're still hanging on this first cross. But if you ever get to a point where you recognize who God is and what He's able to do in your life, as the Scripture said in Matthew 10, it says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When you understand who God is, it'll change your view of Him. It'll cause you not to live rebelliously in your life anymore, especially after you've been saved. Sure, God is gracious and God is merciful, but God still is holy and righteous and just in every way. And He knows where your heart is this morning. He knows where my heart is this morning. And what we find in Scripture is that those who recognize God to the point of salvation were those who also feared God for who He is and what He's able to do. And the man on that cross, the cross of the saved, he was no different. He feared God. Here's what else we find on that cross. We find a man who pleads guilty for his crimes. Look what he says. He says, verse 41, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. The man on this cross was not arguing against his charges. He wasn't saying, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve hell. I don't deserve to be treated like this or to go through these things. He said, as he hung there, he said, we're actually receiving our due reward. In the scriptures, it uses the word indeed, which means truly. 
He's saying, we're, truly, what's happening right now is just. And he was pleading guilty. We find the other man was denying. This man was pleading guilty. This man believed what he was receiving was just, and he knew that he was guilty of his crimes. That's why in salvation, an empty prayer is not enough for people. And this is why you probably never experienced any kind of change in your life when you prayed that prayer, because you never came face to face with your own sin to the point of repentance. Even in Jesus' ministry, he said, repent and believe. Repentance is a change of mind. A change of mind about what? A change of mind about my own sin, that I am a guilty sinner in the presence of God, and I must turn away from sin and turn to the living God in order to be saved. Salvation is really a two-sided coin. I've said this many times in the church here. On one side, there's repentance. On the other side, there's belief. And when you put the two together, that's genuine salvation. Because it changes you. Because you recognize what you are by your own will. You recognize what you are by your own nature. And you say, God, I don't want to be that because I understand that's what's going to be punished in hell. Lord, I want, I want to be different. And I need you to help me to be different. Save me from my sin. There's the plea of the guilty on that cross that over here that we see that, that uh, carries the one who's saved. And then if you look back at the text again, he says in verse 40, he says, Dost, thou, dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? I believe here we see just condemnation, meaning the man has understood why he has to die. Many people, when they're confronted with this gospel message, they're talked about uh, discussing their sin and whether or not they'll get to heaven. It's this, I hope so. I, I, I sure hope I will, but they don't know for sure. And the reason why they don't know for sure is they've never come to that place where they say, no, I am a wicked, ungodly sinner, and my condemnation is just. I deserve hell itself for what I am. But by the grace of God, he'll deliver me from it. Those are the ones who hang on the cross of the saved, the ones who recognize that we have come short of God's glory. This man, if you look back at verse 41 with me, he said, And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. He's done nothing unrighteous. That's what that word amiss means. It means unrighteous. This man, and he's, you know, he's hanging on this cross, and he's pointing to the one in the middle, and he says to the guy over there, he says, Why are you railing on him? We are where we're supposed to be, but this man... He's never done anything unrighteous whatsoever. What's the bar of measurement? What is he comparing it to? How does he know what unrighteous is? He compared Jesus to himself. And if you ever learn to compare Jesus to yourself, it'll change your view of God and Christ. If you ever examine Jesus compared to what you are, you'll find you always come short of Jesus. That Jesus was able to suffer and die the way that he did, Though he was able to call down legions of angels to deliver him, and yet on that day, what did he do? He was, he was beat. He was spat upon. He had his beard ripped from his face. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was embarrassed. They took the cat of nine tails, which is filled full of shards of glass and stone and metal, and they, they whipped him and lashed him across his back, shredding the flesh off of his body. And the whole time he just sat there and he just took it. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't supposed to be there because he had done no sin. That wasn't his punishment. It was our punishment. 
With his stripes we are healed. You see, the one on, the, the, the one on this cross, they recognize, they say, wait a second. I've come short of this one. He hangs on that cross. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And that's why the man, he looks over at the Lord and he cries out for grace. You notice what he says in the verse there? He said unto Jesus, he said, Lord. That's the word kyrios. That's that Greek word that says, that acknowledges the one who owns everything. He didn't say, if thou be the Christ as the other cross. He looked over and he said, Lord. He knew he was talking to. And he said, Lord, he said, remember me. Lord, I'm not worth anything. Lord, I, I deserve where I'm at. I deserve to die and go to hell. I deserve the judgment that I'm going through. Lord, I am an, un an unrighteous sinner hanging upon this cross. I deserve to be here, but Lord, you don't. And Lord, when you go into your kingdom, will you just, just remember me? You know what it was? It was a cry for grace. Because the man knew that he wasn't worthy to be where Christ was going. He knew that he didn't deserve to be delivered from where he was and be sent to heaven. There was nothing in him whatsoever that merited any kind of work from God to allow him to enter into the gates of heaven. So all he could do is plead with the Lord and say, Lord, would you please remember me? Would you just remember me? That's a cry for grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You don't deserve grace. I don't deserve grace. Nobody in all the, all the history of mankind has ever deserved the grace of God. But if you'll humble yourself, recognizing you're a sinner who's come short of the one hanging on that middle cross, and you'll look at him and you'll say, Lord, would you just remember me? Would you help me? Would you deliver me? Would you save me? I don't deserve it, but please, I pray. You see why it's a cry for grace? It's not simple enough to be just an empty, foolish prayer. One, two, three, repeat after me, admit, believe, confess, and you're done. No, you turn to the God of creation. You see him hanging on the cross. You say, Lord, I'm not worthy to be there with you, but would you please save me? Let your grace be demonstrated in my life. There was a cry for grace as he said, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. That was the man's faith, but you know his trust was there as well. He said, thy kingdom, you notice it in the passage, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now somebody might see it that he's hanging on a Roman cross in a providence of Rome. And the Roman Empire has taken over much of the world. And Caesar is ruling many of these, these lands. And yet he doesn't cry out to Rome to see them as a greater superpower. He doesn't cry out to the Romans and say, Romans, will you please remember me whenever you get everything settled? He looks to the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he says, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He knew that the kingdom of the one on the middle cross was greater than any kingdom in this world. He knew the power that was next to him. For you to receive salvation and it changed your life, you'll have to realize that great power. I want to show you a passage in Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, and you can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to read it to you. Paul said this. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Did you know the gospel is God's power for you? 
maybe you're looking for something else today. You're looking for some other way to fill that, that great God-shaped void that's in your heart. You're not going to find it in the world. It'll happen through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. The fact that God came in the form of a man, lived a sinless and perfect life, died for you, was buried for you, and rose again three days later, offering you everlasting life if you'll just come by way of faith, recognizing that God has already declared us all sinners, but that he's ready to save us through the Savior that's come, and he's hanging on the middle cross. This man's cry for grace in it, we see his faith, we see his trust, and certainly we saw his cry that he says, remember me. Now there's the cross of the Savior. This is the last cross as I conclude the message this morning. On this cross, you see three things. You see the promise, you see the payment, and then you see what follows. You see paradise. Look with me in verse 43. Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today, today. You see how it's separated today? It means this certain day, at this, at this certain time. He says, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That's a promise. When he said verily, that word verily is similar to indeed, but it just means truly, truly. It means without a doubt. You can go ahead and mark it down. It's a promise. It is a check that you can take to the bank and you can cash it. It will not bounce. It will not float. Any of those things, it will be cashed because it's a promise. And the one who promises is the same one that you think about the man hanging on this cross. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He's the greater power. He's the Kyrios, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the one who owns it all. And he recognized that, and he's the one who hangs on the cross and says, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. There's a promise. Now why can he make the promise? Look at the next passage. It was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. I want to go back for a second show you some things. The sixth hour was at noontime. What happens at noon with the sun? Here's what happens. It's at its highest point. It was shining bright that day. But the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the almighty Lord of hosts, he shined brighter than the sun that day. You know why? Because his great power darkened the entire world for three hours. And for three hours from noontime until three, the whole world was dark, as it says there in the passage. The sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. That's three o'clock. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. That veil that was hanging there, and I don't have enough time to go into all the detail with it, but the veil that it's referring to was in the temple. The temple was the place where they would take their sacrifices. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in past the veil. And when he went in past the veil, he'd go into what's called the Holiest of Holies. It was a room where inside there was the Ark of the Covenant that, that rested there. In the Ark, there was the Ten Commandments. On top of the Ark, there was what's called the Mercy Seat. There was two cherubims, two angels, and their wings were facing one another like this. And they called it the mercy seat. And the picture, spiritually speaking, is that God would look down, though the law was broken, he would look down in mercy upon the nation of Israel. And once a year, as the high priest would enter in behind that veil, he would take the blood of an innocent animal and he would sprinkle it upon that altar and it would cover the sins of that nation for the entire year. 
But the problem of the problem with the blood of bulls and goats is it passes away. It can't permanently take away sin. Inside that holiest of holies, here's another thing. No one was welcome in there except the high priest. And the high priest had to be careful because if he did not have his sins covered prior to going in, as soon as he stepped into the holiest of holies, he would fall over dead because it was a picture of him being in the presence of God. So here's what they would do. On his garment, he had bells on the bottom of his garment, so he'd make noise when he was behind the bell. The bell, I'm sorry, the veil was as thick as a man's hand. You can imagine how thick that is. And so when he went in, you weren't seeing through from light. It was completely dark in there. So he'd have to make noise. And they say that they used to tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest. And if he did go in there and he had committed a sin, he fell over dead, the bells would stop ringing. And they'd drag the man out and remove him from God's place. But what just happened? The veil was ripped in twain, in two. Here's the picture. When Jesus died on the cross... Jesus did not go in as an earthly high priest, sprinkle one time on the altar and say, your sins will be good for a year. When Jesus died on the cross and His blood was applied to that altar, it was a permanent thing. It was a perfect sacrifice. Later in the New Testament, it says that Christ is the propitiation for God, meaning that Christ was the one who satisfied the wrath of God. So when the blood of Christ was applied upon the mercy seat, it washed away your sin. Therefore, the veil was ripped in twain because now I have access to God, not on my merit, but on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you all know, and I know I've heard some stories here, there's been times where it's been good to go into the throne of grace, into God's throne room and pray. The only reason you're entering in is because of what Christ did for you on that cross 2,000 years ago. That's the veil that was rent when Jesus hung on the cross for three hours that day. Darkness covered the land, and under that darkness, here's what was happening. The punishment for your sin and my sin and the sins of all those in the past and all those in the future, that great punishment was poured out on God's beloved Son that day as He hung on that cross in darkness. And it was such a great uh, event, and it was so heavy of punishment. After it was done, there was a great earthquake that went across the land and split all the rocks in two that were there near the hill of Golgotha that day. And as Christ hung, look back at the text with me, if you will. It says, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. In the other gospel books, we'd read what else Jesus said. Here's what he said. He said, it is finished. Paid in full. The choir sung a song this morning. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. See, on that day at Calvary, that's what Jesus did for us. And that's what the middle cross is. That's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where there was a promise there. There was a payment there. And what follows is what he said, this day or two days shalt thou be with me in paradise. On the cross of the Savior, there was a promise that was made that a payment was given so a paradise could be received. And I want you to know this morning, there is no other bridge one can cross to enter into heaven apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cross number one is about the sinner. It's about me. It's about the world around me. There's no faith there. 
There's no fear there, and there is no future on this cross. Cross number two is not about me, it's about my sin. This person recognized their sin, and they turned to the Lord Jesus, and they depend on Him. That's all they can do. Could you imagine the man hanging on that cross? What could he do? He can't go and pay his tribute. He can't go give tithes to the temple. He couldn't change his clothing. He's ripped, probably hanging there almost naked. He couldn't go and pray in the synagogues or the temples. He couldn't go preach the word. He couldn't go do good deeds for poor people. He couldn't go help the widows. He couldn't go uh, build something for, for uh, someone in need, in need of a home or something. There's no, no work that he could do. All he was doing was hanging on the cross, seeing himself as a sinner, and he turns to the Lord and depends on him. And this morning, that's how you'll receive God's salvation is when you recognize that middle cross that holds the beloved Son of God, and on that cross you see the grace that's there. You see the compassion that's there. You understand the mercy of God that's there, and you realize that that cross exists for you and that Christ wants to be your substitute this morning. Man, if you will, I'm going to ask you to come on up here for uh, the music. And we're going to have an altar call this morning. Three crosses at Calvary. One of them God hung on, but on the other two, we see the sinner and we see the saved. And I ask you this morning, this is a serious question today. As, as you've come to a church that is celebrating the risen Savior, this is a very serious question. This is not worth just putting off, but which cross are you hanging on today? Are you on the cross of the sinner who still doubts God? And you haven't seen yourself as a sinner yet? Or are you on this cross? And you're looking at the Lord Jesus and you're saying, Lord, just remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom.